Welcome everyone to another episode of Flourish FM. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to bring you an episode uh, where we interview Emily Esfahani-Smith. This was a fascinating interview. Uh, Emily is a writer based in Washington, DC. Her 2017 book, The Power of Meaning, develops an account of meaning and she argues that meaning should be the, the main source through which we seek in order to, if you like, live flourishing lives. And that was something we discussed in detail with her today. In addition to her work in The Power of Meaning, she's also given an extremely popular TED Talk, which has been viewed over 9 million times. There's more to life than being happy and that's based on her book yeah that i think john that ted talk and the idea of distinguishing meaning from happiness was probably one of the highlights of the book and mm -hmm. of our conversation with her but i also i also really love you know you and i talk about meaning and purpose a lot but the way she yeah. breaks down meaning into these four components right or four pillars as she put yeah. them and then yeah. talks you know tells us and tells the listeners how to cultivate some of those was was really helpful and i think really a highlight for me what about you yeah i, yeah, I loved the i mean i love the idea of this meaning mindset that emily yeah. writes about the book and how we can cultivate that and what that involves and the the relationship between meaning in this with this interesting account having, having these what you call four pillars and how that relates to human flourishing more broadly yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to chew on in this episode, but some really good, tangible takeaways and action steps. Um, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Emily Estahani-Smith. Hello. Good morning, Emily. How are you doing? Good. How are you guys? Doing all right. Very well. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Where good are we day. finding you this morning? Washington, D.C. Okay. Do you live in, in D.C.? I do. I do. do. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. How all about right. you guys? Where, where are you? London. Right now, London. so it's actually uh, late afternoon for me, four o'clock. Okay. I am in Michigan at the moment, um, currently a nomad, so I don't actually live anywhere, but uh, <laughs> home seeing family. So That's I have to great. tell you, yeah, I, I appreciated the zookeeper story because I'm a Michigan State grad three times. Oh, a row, so wow. I, I always like seeing an MSU shout out in there, especially for zoology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a fun. We, we that year, my husband and I were actually living in Michigan for his work for a year, so we got to explore the state a bit, um, which was a lot of fun. Whereabouts? Um, in Ann Arbor. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah my yeah, my wife's a Michigan grad as well. So oh, okay, cool. So you yeah, you, you uh, commune with the enemy <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. Cool. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We know how busy you are. Um, super appreciative. John and I both love the book. Um, and your TED Talk. And so we're, we're excited to dig into this. And um, we've done, I don't know, what, a dozen of these so far, John? Yeah. But mm -hmm. of all the ones that we've done, meaning and purpose consistently comes up, um, mm -hmm. but we haven't like dug deep. So I think mm -hmm. we're both really looking forward to this conversation here. So. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. I just want to add, Emily, your book, I'm I'm really in awe of it. It's 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 fantastic. It's I love the the way you write and the wide set of resources you draw on from literature, religion, well, world religions, philosophy, psychology. My my background's in philosophy, so a lot of it That's resonated cool. with me. And it particularly resonated with me when you your kind of criticism of the way philosophy's gone in terms of how it deals with meaning these days. And I think you you go over it. My only criticism of the book would be like, you're very kind to philosophy. <laughs> you're kind. Like philosophy, need, academic philosophy needs to be returned, you know, yeah. to the kind of questions you raise. You're like, well, yeah, philosophy doesn't do this anymore. But I think that's a bad thing about academic philosophy. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I'd love to at some point talk more about that. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. loved your book. It's uh, very inspiring, beautifully written. And I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you. Thank you. Thank you both. I've been looking forward to this as well. Great. 
Nice. Well, we'll we'll jump right in. Okay, sounds good. Great, cool. Um, okay, John, do you want to kick us off and get us going? So, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited for this conversation. And um, I want to kind of start off, well, we'd like to start off with digging into your background that led to um, your interest in meaning and your aim of showing how we can find a greater sense of meaning in our lives, which has ultimately led to your 2017 book, The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness and your work since. So what led your interest in this area and your aim of, of this kind of central aim of your work and perhaps your life? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, it's so good to be here with, with both of you. Thank you, Nick and John, for having me. Um, so there's there's really, I guess, like two answers to that question. There's one that kind of reaches back more uh, to my childhood and then one that's really more to what I learned in graduate school. So I'll start with the, the latter. And when I was in graduate school, Back in 2012, uh, learning about positive psychology, which is the area of psychology that studies well-being, uh, meaning, happiness, those kinds of topics empirically, I uh, encountered, for the first time, I think, the work of Viktor Frankl, uh, the Holocaust survivor. And he wrote uh, this beautiful book called Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. which was about his you know, experiences in, in the concentration camps. And... Um, you know, it's it's a, I, it's a book I highly recommend if you know for those listening who haven't read it. Uh, but but basically, Frankel talks about the importance of finding meaning in suffering, and he has this concept in the book uh, called tragic optimism, which is uh, you know the ability to hold on to hope and meaning in life despite the fact that life is full of suffering and and loss and you know grief and you know these are experiences that we will all have at some point or another. And so the ability to hold on to meaning and hope through that, I just found it really inspiring. Um, and you know, at the same time, I was learning about, you know, in, the, in that program about research, empirical research on meaning and happiness. And I came to see that they were, they were separate mm-hmm. uh, ideas. And I hadn't really thought of them as separate ideas before. Um, but as I kind of dug deeper into the research and also into Frankel's work, I saw that he too and many other you know, psychiatrists, psychologists of that era talked about how, you know, there is this obsession with happiness in our culture up in, in the more modern research. So that was kind of the beginning of what led me down the journey that led to the book. But I think that, you know, going back even younger, I had a very spiritual childhood. Um, my parents were a Sufi. Sufism is a spiritual, mystical uh, branch of Islam. And we lived in a Sufi meeting house. So I was like a meditation center, basically. Um, so people, these spiritual seekers would come to our home and they would meditate for several hours, a couple times a week. And that was just, you know, this idea of leading a meaningful life was kind of in the air. And I was surrounded by all these people who were committed to that and who many of them had led difficult lives, you know, some are refugees from the Middle East and, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, reflecting back on that experience when I was in grad school, you know, there was this, I was, I started thinking more about how, you know, you, you can lead a good life, even if it's a hard life, um, mm-hmm. you know, so happiness might not be so central to a life like that, but meaning it can be. And I just thought that was a really beautiful idea. Wow. Well, thank you very much. I mean, yeah, Viktor Frankl has come up a number of times yeah, in these conversations, unsurprisingly, yeah. because 
<laughs> so, so inspirational in, in flourishing research, particularly on the importance of hope and meaning, as you point out. And something that really, uh, I think I speak on behalf of both Nick and I, really impressed us about your book was this wide array of sources you draw upon in your writing, particularly from philosophy, psychology, literature, and world religion. So you've mentioned Frankel and your, your upbringing. Are there any other major influences on your thought and work? I would say that those are, um, you know, that those two things are what, you know, led me down this path of, of writing more about meaning. But I think definitely just, you know, growing up, I, you know, because I was interested in these big questions of meaning um, and, you know, how do you lead a good life? I was drawn to flaw- studying philosophy uh, in in college. And so there, you know, I know we were talking about this just a moment ago before the show, you know, academic philosophy today isn't um, a place where questions of kind of meaning and value are as central as, you know, those questions were kind of historically to philosophy. Um, but still, you know, it, you know, when you when you kind of start digging into the field, you do come across thinkers who have taken up that question in a serious way. And so in my book, I write about um, the French philosopher, um, Albert Camus, and um, and Aristotle, of course, who I, I bet has, is someone else who's also probably come up a lot in these shows because um, he is he's a central figure within positive psychology. Um, so those are some others. And, you know, some novels that I write about as well, um, you know, I'll just mention one of them, the novel Middlemarch, mm-hmm. I think is a beautiful um, uh, kind of statement about how to lead a meaningful life. Uh, and I could go on about all of them, but I'll, I'll just stop there. No, no, that's well, that's wonderful. I mean, these are some of the resources. I, I, I love the way you, you discuss them and intertwine them with the, the general narrative in, in your book. I mean, just a brief follow-up to that. Do you think that an important way of finding meaning in our own lives is actually to read these canonical pieces of literature as as a kind of source of you know didactic inspiration and, and a means of living living better lives that we we ought to be reading these texts as a way of finding in our own lives a sense of meaning i i do think so i think that you know certainly you know across the history of you know education especially higher education a lot of these texts were were central. They were considered, you know, as you say, canonical, like part of a core curriculum. Um, and that was in large part because, I mean, I think there were two reasons. One is because they were considered to hold like some of the greatest ideas of history. And, you know, if you're going to be educated, like, you know, you would want to know what those are, I would think. Mm-hmm. But also um, they are kind of um, manuals about how to live. And I think that the um, that schools, especially institutions of higher education, used to take that idea of helping students figure out how to lead a meaningful life more seriously. And and part of how they did that was educating them, you know, in ideas, you know, in kind of philosophers like Aristotle and, you know, Shakespeare, these great works where all, you know, all of them are really taking up like the question of like, how do you lead a good life? How do you, you know, have good relationships? Like, what do you do when you're faced with with loss? How do you make sense of this kind of complicated and terrifying world? So um, I think that there are a lot of answers in those books. And also I would say in religious texts as well. Um, I once interviewed, uh, as a journalist myself, I interviewed um, a, a woman, a scholar named Camille Pallia, and she said something that I've 
um, thought a lot about since, which is that, you know, if we really want to give people a multicultural education and education multiculturalism, we should educate them in the world's religions, because that's mm. where you really learn about culture. And I would say also about meaning. Great. Yeah. I mean, your book serves in many ways. You could go through it and pull out kind of key texts that, you know, a student ought to read through their education. I love, for example, your discussion of uh, Tolstoy's A Confession mm. quite early in your book. Um, anyway, I'm I'm going to get get lost uh, talking about too much here because because I loved your work. Well, but I'm going to hand over to Nick. <laughs> I, I will too because I'm I'm uh, I have teaching certifications in the academic study of religions. My dissertation was on eudaimonia. So you're you're uh, speaking my language big time here, <laughs> and the book did as well. So I, I love where we've taken this. Um, I'm going to pull us back for a second. And if, if we can just speak a little bit about the role of meaning and human flourishing. And then I think related to that, um, and you can kind of pick this apart in whatever order you want, but you do a great job of distinguishing between meaning and happiness, right? And I'd love for you to just kind of tease apart the dynamics between meaning, flourishing, and happiness, and how you think about those three constructs, if you would. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, in talking about the you know role of meaning in a flourishing life, I'll just, I'll go back to Frankel um, for a moment. So Frankel's you know, signature contribution to the field of psychiatry and psychology was something called logotherapy. And, and logos is the ancient Greek word for meaning, so meaning therapy. And the idea behind it was that, you know, human beings have this need for meaning that says, you know, vital to our psychological and spiritual health as the need for, you know, food, water, and, and safety and shelter are for our physical well-being. Um, and that without meaning, we suffer in profound ways. And so, you know, the, so Frankel talks a lot about how we need a reason to live, a why to kind of move us forward. And in Man's Search for Meaning, he illustrates this by talking about, telling the story of two um, suicidal inmates that that he counseled in, in the camps kind of informally as, as a therapist. And for both of them, he said, um, restoring in them the will to live was a matter of getting them to see that there was still something waiting for them in the future, something expected of them in the future. Um, so for one, it was the prospect of reuniting with his son who was living um, in, in, in safety elsewhere in Europe. And then for the other, who was a scholar and academic, it was you know returning to his, his scholarship after the war. Um, so I think that you know meaning is that kind of why that gets us through um, you know, the good things, but also the bad things in life. It's vital to, to flourishing. Um, you know, if you, um, they're not always things that make us happy moment to moment, whether it's the work that we do or raising children or devoting ourselves to some kind of, you know, political or uh, social cause. Um, but they give us this kind of sense of deeper satisfaction. And in terms of kind of pulling apart um, meaning, happiness, and flourishing, the way I think about it is, um, I think, I guess like flourishing, I would think of kind of as the, you know, the, the overarching construct and meaning and happiness is kind of two, uh, two, pat, two approaches to leading a good life. Um, some people kind of are oriented towards the pursuit of happiness and others are oriented towards the search for meaning. And um, meaning, the way that psychologists and philosophers define it is as, um, you know, the defining feature of a meaningful life is connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself, whether, right. again, it's the work you do, um, a community, God, nature. Um, and so th those things that 
kind of give your life a sense of significance and worth and purpose. Um, and happiness, the way it's typically defined and certainly the way it's measured in the research is a positive mental and emotional state. So if you feel good, you're happy. If you feel bad, you're unhappy and it comes and goes. Um, so, so, and, and that's, you know, I was talking earlier about some of the research on meaning and happiness. So part of what um, gets tricky with happiness is that because it does come and go, um, you kind of building a life around the pursuit of it is, is inevitably going to cause problems for you because it's not always going to be there. Um, and that's what we see in the research that when people kind of, uh, you know, devote themselves to the pursuit of happiness, that they, you know, can feel unhappy, um, that it's not as lasting, whereas meaning does kind of produce a, flir- you know, a flourishing life. And you know, speaking of Aristotle um, and eudaimonia, um, you know, I think Aristotle is another, another thinker to come back to here because his idea of eudaimonia often gets translated as happiness. And so he says um, in the Nicomachean Ethics that the end of man, you know, the, the purpose is of, of human life is to pursue eudaimonia. And that often gets translated as happiness. But that's not that's not the true translation, I'm told, you know, when I talk to kind of philosophers and, and scholars of the classics, that actually it's flourishing. And that flourishing, according to Aristotle, was about leading this kind of active life where you're realizing your potential and, um, you know, activating your your strengths and, and, and living a life of virtue. And that's much more consistent with um, a meaningful life than necessarily right. a happy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, it, uh, you hit on so many important points there. I often say to people like the chase of happiness, it's, it's easy to become kind of the dog chasing its tail, mm-hmm. right? You never quite get there, um, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I love the reference to, you know, John and I talk about a lot of different sort of models or frameworks for flourishing. And I think you see some of the elements of both embedded, you know, meaning and happiness embedded mm-hmm. in these different frameworks, whether it's Harvard or Penn, you know, PERMA, human oh, flourishing, sure. those sorts of things. Let's dig into what meaning is, right? And you do such a beautiful job in the book of kind of teasing out what you refer to as these four pillars of meaning, right? So you've got um, belonging, purpose, transcendence, and storytelling, would you, for our listeners, just kind of talk about each one of those pillars and how you feel that, or the research suggests that they contribute to an overall sense of meaning? So when I was doing my research for my book, I, you know, it's like you say, I wanted to know like what meaning is, like what do we have to have in our lives in order for our lives to feel meaningful? And so when I interviewed people about their stories and looked at the research, it was these four themes that I, I noticed again and again um, coming up. And so, you know, with belonging, for example, that has to do with our, you know, relational nature as, as human beings. Human beings are social animals. And I think probably, you know, people listening to this podcast know that relationships are important for, for well-being and for flourishing. But for meaning, it's really about a certain type of relationship. Um, one that's defined by a sense of belonging or, or where you're valued for who you are intrinsically um, and where you value where you value others for who they are intrinsically. So really kind of seeing the other person um, in, you know in and of themselves. Um, purpose is kind of relates to some of the things we were talking about with Frankel. It's that why, it's that thing that motivates you, that kind of pulls you into the future, um, your reason for, for, for living. So psychologists define it as um, 
a goal or a principle that organizes your life and that involves making a contribution to others. So it could be something like, you know, finding a cure for cancer or being a good parent or um, being a kind person. Um, So that's purpose. And then transcendence has to do with, you know, these kind of wondrous experiences of awe um, where you encounter something that kind of takes your breath away. And, you know, mystics talk about how it puts you in touch with a reality that's more real than reality itself. There's something that just feels very true about them. Um, So like looking up at the stars at night and reflecting on the vastness of the universe compared to your own puniness, Um, being in nature, you know, meditation, religious rituals. These are all ways that we kind of access the sacred realm and, and, you know, feel this kind of connectedness to something much larger than ourselves. Um, And finally, storytelling is about how we make sense of our own experiences, the story that we tell ourselves about how we became the person that we are today and about where we're going and about also kind of how we make sense of the things that happen to us on a day-to-day level. Perfect. I love I love that you brought us, you mentioned earlier, um, connecting and contributing, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, the, you beautifully weave this relationship between, I think, like you can't really have purpose without the belonging piece. I, mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, I think mm-hmm. the research suggests that. I think you suggest that. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad yep. you you brought us back there. We, you know, we had a conversation we told you earlier this week where we talked about um, a particular framework for flourishing that's missing mm-hmm. meaning um, mm-hmm. and purpose, but it's because it's oriented towards young people, right? And if mm-hmm. we have time later, maybe we'll come back to that in this particular yep. Uh, guests suggested that it's it's not typically a huge priority for young people, but maybe mm. that's something we can tease out. Yeah. But John, yeah. John, you want to take us in a, a different direction now? Well, yeah, and, and I'd like to just ask a quick follow-up on, on this kind of quadripartite account of mm. meaning. Um, are are each of those um, constituents of meaning? Do you have do you, do you, on your account? Do you have to have all of them to have meaning, or if you have, you know, a bit question. like positive psychology and kind of mm-hmm. the perma model? you know, Seligman doesn't say you have to have all of them. You know, you can mm-hmm. live what he calls like the the, the accomplishing life, I think, or the engaged mm-hmm. life or heavily with yeah. one of them and that can still be flourishing. So on your view as well, can you do you, can you have a strong sense of meaning by, let's say, having a very strong sense of belonging, but not much to the three or a very strong mm-hmm. act of storytelling, but not much to the three or maybe, but at least some of the three. How, mm-hmm. how does that work? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a great question. And I would say that, yes, it is like permit in the sense that you don't necessarily have to have all all four of those pillars um, to, to lead a meaningful life. But I will say that um, nearly everyone that I talk to, and when you look at the research, I mean, belonging comes up again and again. I think that if you, you know, if you don't have that sense of belonging, even if it's just with one or two other people um, or just one community, um, that that might be that 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 could um, be more of a challenge in terms of you know ha- having feeling like your life is kind of full of meaning. Um, the other thing I'll say is that even though you don't necessarily have to have all of these pillars in your life, um, it's you know when you do encounter setbacks or when one of those pillars suddenly that was suddenly that was important to you suddenly is no longer part of your life because let's say you retire or you become an empty nester you know these life changes um it's good to be able to then turn to another you know pillar so that your kind of meaning 
you're not living in a meaning vacuum all of a sudden because of these changes. And so it just kind of gives more, I guess, stability to the meaning structure if you have more than one pillar in your life. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is that different people are kind of more oriented towards different pillars. So for some people, those relationships, that is really what kind of, you know, lights them up for others. It is more kind of their, their spiritual life and those, those moments of transcendence and wonder. So it can kind of be personal in that sense. Okay, great. Well, you you just, yeah, you just, that's perfect. And you just used, I think the key word that, you know, we want to go to next, which is spirituality. Right. Uh So, you know, this particular show is sponsored by the human flourishing program at Harvard, right? A big part of their model for human flourishing and a lot of the writing that some of the people in their shop have done is on this connection between, I think you could see different terms, spirituality, religiosity, those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. And, and again, in the opening chapters with your history and Sufism, you do a great job of tying this together. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about the what you feel the role of spirituality or religiosity, however you want to conceptualize mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. is in cultivating a meaningful life or could be in cultivating a meaningful life? Yeah, definitely. So I think that, I mean, one of the things that I did when I was writing this book was I spent a lot of time thinking about why it was that religion and spirituality are such powerful sources of meaning uh, for people. And, you know, if you look, if you kind of take the very long view of history, you know, across thousands of years, the way that people found meaning and made sense of their lives and their experiences in the universe as a whole, their and their place in the universe was through, you know, connection to the sacred, was through religious rituals, spirituality, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, increasingly, especially over the last several hundred years, you know, the world, especially the developed world has become more and more secular. And so that, that source of meaning that grounded our ancestors for thousands of years um, is no longer central to people's lives today. And I think that's left a meaning vacuum. And as I was thinking about, you know, where meaning comes from and why, you know, why people don't have a sense of meaning today, like, like they used to, why so many people are living with an existential vacuum. I think it is because of that, you know, absence of what religion provided for people. And mm-hmm. I would argue that what it provided was kind of this, um, this structure that had all the four pillars in it. So, you know, religion gave you a sense of belonging through, through the community, your community involvement. Sure. Um, it gave you a purpose and, you know, kind of advocating for a certain way to live your life and a certain way to be in the world. Um, it gave opportunities for transcendence, of course, through rituals and practices like meditating or prayer or, or a liturgy. Um, and then finally, it kind of gave you a story. It helped you make sense yeah. of the world and your place in it. Uh, so, you know, now without that, for a lot of people, you have to kind of reconstruct it, I would say, for yourself. And that can be harder to do. So that's where I was going to go next is if if we were trying to reconstruct it, or I like this phrase you used a couple, used a couple times, which is a meaning vacuum. Mm-hmm. How might we fill that vacuum if not through spirituality or religiosity? And I'm sure there's maybe many options, but if you've seen mm-hmm. something in the research or your experience that it, it, it seems like people seem to be gravitating to when it's mm-hmm. not religion. Mm-hmm. I think definitely, you know, work has become a substitute for a lot of people. Um, you know, even this idea that, you know, people are kind of seeking a calling in the work that they do that, you know, that that's kind of been appropriated by, you know, the secular world and by, um, you know, people who, who study, um, you know, meaning at work and meaning within organizations. Yeah. Um, but obviously that's, that's 
a word that has kind of a religious connotation to it. But I think it just suggests, and Amy Brzezinski at um, Yale talks a lot about this, how the, um, you know, in the absence of kind of religion as a source of meaning, people are increasingly turning to work and expecting that work might give them that sense of meaning. And, you know, while on the one hand, I would say that, you know, I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, many, nearly all kinds of work do can give people a sense of meaning. I also think that it's putting a lot of pressure on yourself and on your work and on your relationship to work to kind of expect it to fill that um, existential vacuum. So I think that, you know, work is certainly a place that we can turn to. Um, and, you know, I think being intentional about our relationships, you know, family, our families, you know, that's, that's kind of something that we're all you know, we're born into and all, and then later on, if we choose to, we can have, you know, for ourselves, um, the communities that we're a part of. And I think too, you know, just taking time to, you know, do some introspection when it comes to storytelling, for example, yeah. making sense of your experiences and the kind of person you are. So it is possible, you know, to do these things. I'm not saying that if you, if you do them on your own, it's necessarily going to fill that vacuum left by religion and spirituality, but, um, I do think that there is kind of like a, a personal way that you can find a path to meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, that that word you mentioned there, introspection, I was just kind of thinking about it as you laid it out there, because it, it seems to me, it's always seemed to me that meaning and purpose is is completely subjective, mm-hmm. right? And so the book you walk, you talk about the the stories we tell ourselves, and when it comes mm-hmm. to work and jobs, you hear all these, I think, you know, inspiring and beautiful stories about people doing jobs that mm-hmm. I, w- I won't mention the jobs. I don't want to insult any listeners, mm-hmm. but let's just say jo- jobs that many of us probably might not find super meaningful or purposeful, mm-hmm. but they're able to, right. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you, do you agree with that, that meaning and purpose are almost entirely subjective and it really does often come down to this, this lens we take, what we spotlight, mm-hmm. the story we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't, so I would say that there's definitely like a mindset that you can have, like a meaning mindset. Right. Um, I don't, you know, we have a philosopher here. And so I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, if meaning is completely subjective or objective, I think that's above my pay grade, I would say. But um, I think that, you know, the, the attitude that we take towards the things that we do and the things that are happening to us can either help us build meaning in our lives or help us, you know, or, you know, cause meaning to kind of, you know, fritter away from our lives. Um I'm just thinking of an example. Like, I mean, you you mentioned the thing about work and um, one of the people I interviewed, she's actually part of this study that Amy Rizniski at Yale and her colleagues had conducted um, at a hospital in the Midwest. And they were were studying hospital cleaners. And um, with Amy's help, I was able to track down one of the uh, one of the cleaner cleaners, uh, a woman named Candace and Candace and I were talking and, you know, she told me that, you know, she doesn't think about her job as a, you know, I was mopping the floors and taking the trash out. She thinks about it as healing sick people. Um, so she's part of this kind of larger mission of the hospital. And, um, and she kind of takes the, you know, everyday tasks that she's doing and she, she kind of sees them through that lens of, of meaning and purpose. And it, kind of dignifies like everything that she's doing. And I think that that attitude is an attitude that we can all adopt, whether we're like washing the dishes and doing chores or dealing with paperwork or, you know, going through emails or whatever tedious things that, you know, take up a lot of our day. 
Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny. I want to give space to John to ask a follow up, <laughs> but it's, it's a funny aside because I was just had a little bit of time to myself last night and was just kind of, you know, um, scanning Netflix. And I saw this mm-hmm. new show called Is It Cake? Mm-hmm. And in the preview, to the, the whole premise is these people that make cakes look like other things real life things. <laughs> and in the trailer, this, the, one of the contestants literally says, he's like, it's just such a weird thing. Cause there's people out there saving lives. And I've devoted my life to making cake look like other things. Uh-huh. Right? That's interesting. Yeah. But he has a sense of meaning in it, some sort of yeah. sense of purpose and, and pleasure. So, but that's a great example of, of the folks, um, you know, uh, cleaning or mopping right in the hospital. So perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you, uh, particularly about the meaning mindset. That was something we really wanted to, to dig deep on. But just one follow-up on, on the subjectivity of meaning here. Um, I mean, because you're, you're very inspired by positive psychology um, and, and Martin Seligman's work. And he points out that meaning can't be entirely subjective in the sense that, you know, he gives the example of Abraham Lincoln, who was you know, depressed and didn't find all of his actions meaningful, even though they clearly were. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if maybe you see the relation as not uh, two directional. So as it were, mm-hmm. you can have, um, you can view your life as not meaningful, even though it really is. So mm-hmm. you can be wrong in that sense, but the inverse mm-hmm. doesn't hold that you can find rich sources of meaning in anything. And it's not r- really the case. You can say to someone, no, what you're really doing is meaningless. Mm-hmm. If you add storytelling elements to it in, in the kind of examples you give that mm-hmm. I don't know this has actually just occurred to me now this idea but yeah. <laughs> a kind of a background view on meaning here I, mm-hmm. I'm asking if this is maybe something you've considered as to the object the possible the level to which meaning is objective but mm-hmm. the relationship is maybe not two-way in the way I've described yeah, that's that's, re- that's really interesting, and and thanks for reminding me of the of uh, Seligman's example about Lincoln because that that is a good one. Um, and I think in my in my writing, I encountered that kind of example a lot that people not thinking that their lives are meaningful when mm-hmm. you know I think for an outsider looking in would say no, like you're doing all these meaningful things, you're involved in all these meaningful projects and pursuits. You know, you don't have to be like you know ending slavery, you know, but you are you know doing still doing meaningful things. Um, And, you know, if it goes the other direction as well, I think that, you know, one thing that's important to talk about with meaning is that, you know, meaning, a meaningful life is one thing and like a good life in the sense of a moral, morally good life um, is, is another thing. And I think that this is somewhere where I, you know, my kind of knowledge of, of philosophy and my just own powers of reasoning, like don't. I, I didn't really go there in in the book to kind of sort out to what is the overlap between a meaningful life and a moral life because they don't mm. always overlap. Thank you very much, Emily. So let's let's go to the meaning mindset because that is something we really want to dig into. And I, I think there's overlaps with various things you've said. So I'm very yeah, curious yeah. as to as what exactly the meaning mindset involves. You've you've outlined various areas, but how we can cultivate this as well. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, some points it seems to me that might contribute to it would be. Uh, story storytelling that mm-hmm. having a kind of a uh, cultivating a meaning mindset is about creating a narrative that supports a sense of meaning in your life mm-hmm. um, in perhaps uh, you know or, and, and also having a sense of hope so I, I, I can't help but compare it to the notion of a growth mindset with Carol mm-hmm. Dweck where 
in a certain sense, that does involve a sense of hope. You know, you see some skill as that which you can develop. So you're, you're hoping that with enough work, you can do that thing. And it's also about telling a certain narrative of your life that, look, if I just keep trying at this thing, I will improve. And, you know, it doesn't matter certain past events where I didn't show myself as being particularly skilled in this area. I, I can get this. You are telling a kind of narrative that helps support that in, in a different mm-hmm. sense. So, yeah, if you could explain kind of a little more what this involves and how exactly we can cultivate a meaning mindset. I think I do think that kind of storytelling is is an important part of it in in the sense that um, you know the mindset that you have, and I think that this is what uh, Carol Dweck's you know Carol Dweck is trying to argue um, in her work is you know anything that's happening in the world or is happening to you, it's it's just kind of a thing that's happening, and then you bring a perspective to it. Um, and your perspective could be like, I, you know, I'm never going to be good at math or your perspective could be like, this is really hard, but I'm going to, I'll get better if I keep working at, at this, you know, to, to, to talk about growth mindset. I think that, you know, with meaning too, it's similar like things happen to you. And then you, one of the things that you can do is re- respond and choose how you're going to think about what happened to you? Um, you know, just to go back to Frankel, he in Man's Search for Meaning, he writes about how you know everything can be taken from a person except their ability to choose how they make sense of their experiences. And so, if we think about someone like Candace, you know, doing you know work as a hospital cleaner, she, there was a number of different ways she could have made sense of that experience. But the story that she chose to tell was, you know, I'm healing sick people. That's what my work is really about. Um, so I think that storytelling in a sense of framing, you know, and telling a story about everything that you do um, is is definitely, you know, a key way that we can develop a meaning mindset. And related to that, I think that, you know, part of what a meaning mindset is, is recognizing that there are these kind of untapped sources of meaning that are all around us if we just kind of opened our eyes to them. And so having that you know, that filter, you know, by which we kind of view the world, I think is another way that we can develop that meaning mindset. Great. Thank you. It's a great notion. One that I really hope, you know, mm-hmm. catches on as, as much as growth mindset does. Uh, Nick, I'm, I've, I've been getting... Uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to keep, keep us on this thread here and, and go even deeper. And we might be kind of putting out our, our signature question too early here, but eventually we're going to ask you sort of, you know, what do you think one thing is that people might do immediately to flourish? But but before we get to that point, um, when it comes to leading a more meaningful life, when it comes to developing that meaning mindset, so, it, you know, I hear storytelling, what's an action step in your mm-hmm. experience or, or according to the research that, you know, anyone listening right now can kind of take today or tomorrow? Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, writing about your life experiences, you know, Mm. journaling, there's a good deal of research showing that um, when we, you know, especially the research I'm talking about asks people to reflect on, you know, upsetting experiences from their lives. So traumatic experiences, experiences of adversity and kind of writing about, you know, their thoughts and emotions. And this is called expressive writing. And um, what researchers find is that if people do this for 15 minutes a day for three or four days in a row, that they end up developing a greater sense of meaning about what happened to them. They, they, they eventually kind of start making sense of it and, and even are able to find some kind of 
silver lining, um, some way that they grew perhaps as a result of it. Um, so that's kind of specifically, I'm specifically talking about, you know, how you make sense of and make meaning of difficult experiences. But right. I think from that research, we can, you know, pull out the idea of journaling in general and spending time, even if it's just a couple minutes, a couple times a week, just kind of writing about our, our, our you know, what, what's happening to us. And, um, you know, the researcher, Dan McAdams at Northwestern University, he writes a lot about and has done a lot of research on the narratives people craft about their lives. And one way that he, um, in his research, gets people to think about their life story is by asking them questions like, um, you know, what was the high point of your life? What was the low point of your life? What were the turning points of your life? Mm. Um, if you had to divide your life into chapters, what would those chapters look like? Mm. Um, what, you know, what are the themes that you see um, running through your life? And so I think those are questions that we can kind of ask ourselves too, as we, you know, do, build this pillar of storytelling. And that journaling is one way that we can kind of, you know, begin to unpack answers to those questions. I love, I love all those questions. So li mm -hmm. literally not just talking about storytelling sort of abstractly, but literally reflecting and turning your life into the story that it is, right. Or having this meta awareness of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. That, Beautiful. I mean, then that relates to um, the, the, the next thing I'd really like to ask you, which and intertwines with a, a theme that comes up a lot in your book, which is education. Um, and you seem to care very deeply about education and the way that it's, mm -hmm. it's gone and give a very interesting account of the history of education, particularly in the last century. And I mean, you argue that an important role of education is to help students develop an understanding and vision of what is meaningful, but uh, you draw attention to the fact that education's increasingly become, and still is becoming perhaps even more so, regarded as primarily instrumental. Mm -hmm. And that's led to a decline of what we might call education's meaning aim, you know, developing a, a sense of uh, meaning in our lives. Mm -hmm. Now, among the research you point to is survey data showing that in the late 1960s, 86% of US college freshmen reported that their top priority was developing a meaningful life philosophy, mm -hmm. which has dropped by more than half since. Mm -hmm. So in what ways do you think education needs to change to fulfill its, what I've just called there, its meaning aim? Mm -hmm. I think... Um, this is such a hard question, I think. Um, there's, you know, I, you know, and I'm going to kind of paint a picture of something that I don't know if it will actually, it has the possibility of ever actually happening, but it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the idea that um, these, these colleges and universities create um, a structure for students and present them with a curriculum where they're learning and encountering you know, ideas about what it means to lead a meaningful life. And I think that kind of making that a requirement, you know, having a couple classes and maybe one of them is a positive psychology class and a flourishing class. Maybe another one of them is a class on, you know, the, the world religions or something like that. Um, I think that, you know, basically creating a venue for students to rigorously engage with, with the question of meaning and to learn about what, other people, whether it's researchers or the great thinkers of the past, have said about this um, mm -hmm. to give them options about, you know, what a meaningful life looks like and how they want to, which of those options they want to choose, I think is really vital. Um, so I think having, you know, some kind of curriculum around that. And I know that schools today increasingly are kind of offering classes on flourishing and the good life and things like that. And I think all of that's great. I think a lot of those classes um, are kind of taking students through positive psychology ideas and research. And obviously I think that's great because my own background is, is in that. But 
I also think making room for the humanities too, those novels, those, you know, religious and spiritual myths, um, you know, those ideas from philosophy is really important because that's kind of the, the soul of it. You know, if the, if the research is like the, you know, I don't know, the body of it, like the soul of it is really important as well. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up those other courses because as you were talking, I'm thinking, well, you, you know, you got Laurie Santos at Yale and, yeah. and Tal Ben Shahar when he was at Harvard and he's doing it with Miami now, but, and you're seeing these actually starting to pop up in high schools even as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that we even told you, but John and I are both educators and have spent a lot of our careers in schools. So this is something oh, yeah. that's flourishing is interesting, but you can't exist in a, you know, a classroom with teenagers and and sit there and think like, oh, this is the best version of, of how we do this, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's more to be had. And I, I think flourishing hopefully will provide some of those answers. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like something we could extract from your, your account and your advice is that uh, there should be greater attention to storytelling in schools, mm-hmm. writing stories, but writing stories of your own life. Mm-hmm. Of course, many students do that in English literature, but kind of perhaps a greater focus on that as one of the means of developing a sense of meaning. Yeah, and I think that just to go back to the idea of the humanities too, I mean, one way that we make sense of our own story is by reading the stories of others. And there's research that shows that like one of the things that people do as they're reading a novel or, or watching a movie or whatever, encountering the stories of others, is they're kind of processing their own story through that other story. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that in my book, I don't write so much about how, you know, novels and movies and these other forms of storytelling can build meaning, but they can, um, you know, that they do build meaning by helping us with our own stories too. Great. Thank you so much for this, for that answer to that question. Um, So I understand that you're writing a new book, Emily. Um, at least I, I read that on your your Instagram account. And we and I love <laughs> we and our, Nick and I and our listeners would love to hear about this new book you're working on. Could you please tell us about it? So the the new book is about um, the you know it's kind of a criticism of the success culture, the culture of achievement, and how um, this preoccupation with success can cause people to lose themselves, um, to lose their own path. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to argue that there's a deeper way to understand what it means to be a successful and accomplished human being than just, you know, reaching all those extrinsic goals of fame and money and wealth or whatever. Um, so kind of going back to the great philosophers and psychologists, especially from the 20th century psychologists, you know, how, what they thought about what, you know, you know, flourishing life, but also like what you need to be like a successful adult. Like, what does that involve? Um, so that's so that's kind of a little hint, uh, preview of the book, I would say. Wow, and this and this sounds like it connects up with um, one of the themes of, of this this book and something we were talking about earlier. That um, people, you know, work has become regarded as a source of meaning mm-hmm. in the absence of religion or with declines in, in religious belief, that's replaced it. Is that something you develop in the book? Yeah. So that's that. Yeah, definitely. I talk about how, um, I will talk about anyways, how, um, you know, the relationship to work and how the success culture has kind of worked it. Um, you know, there's this place where, you know, we can find meaning. It's important in our paid work and in our unpaid work, you know, the work that we do when we're at home or whatever, um, you know, that th- that is such a source of meaning. And yet, um, you know, when things become about like incentives and profit and, and raises and, uh, you know, promotions, uh, and we're on this kind of rat race in the treadmill and everything, um, we lose sight of, of the meaning and kind of get alienated from the work and, and from ourselves. So 
I think there's definitely, you know, a story to be told about that. Absolutely. Very timely. It sounds like yeah. looking forward to seeing that. So, yeah. And when, I mean, cause you're simultaneously doing a PhD, right? So when, <laughs> when, when, I mean, when, are you, when, I mean, maybe this isn't a question you can answer, but when, when do you anticipate the book uh, being published? I don't know. So that, that is, yeah, that is um, a, a question that I don't know the answer to quite yet, but hopefully um, in the next few years. Okay, what are great. you pursuing your PhD in? Uh, clinical psychology. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Where? At Catholic University. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So have fun with that. I mean, you've, you've basically <laughs> already done two PhDs by writing. This book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Let's, okay. So, we, um, Nick, do you? Yeah, yeah. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and and mm-hmm. I referenced this earlier, Emily. You kind of touched on it, but we'll we'll see if we can get two for one here. So we have kind of a signature question that we ask uh, all of our guests towards the end of the episode, which we just sort of call the the flourishing question. Mm-hmm. I referenced it earlier. What might be the one thing uh, that you would suggest to our listeners that they try out in order to create a more flourishing life? Now, you mentioned the journaling piece and storytelling, mm-hmm. so maybe we'll kind of. Um, pick on or or tease out some of the other three pillars, right? Belonging, purpose, mm-hmm. transcendence. What might be a, a clear action step where you, you feel like the, the juice is really worth the squeeze for people to try? Mm-hmm. I would say, I would recommend, um, you know, making, even if it's just five minutes a day for stillness, I'll call it, or for silence, um, where you just kind of unhook from the phone, from the technology, from all the noise that, you know, takes up, you know, f- fills our minds and just be for, for a few minutes. And I think that that taps into a number of the pillars. I think it's a source of transcendence. Um, if we can just kind of, you know, transcendence is kind of just like about stepping away from the hustle and bustle of daily life. I think that in those moments of silence and stillness, we, we do kind of learn about ourselves. So there's introspection there, which helps with purpose and with storytelling. And I think that, you know, being silent and slowing down also, um, you know, if we practice that skill, it enables us to be more present in our relationships to others, which um, builds belonging. Right, right. Which is the key to just about everything else. (laughs) This has been a a real, real treat and pleasure for us. Um, As we said earlier, John and I both really love the book love your work overall and and are looking forward to the next one. That sounds fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you both so much. This was really great. I really appreciate all the thoughtful questions and and hearing your perspectives as well. Um, So thanks for having me. Thank you. But again, we just, we're super, super appreciative of the time. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.